Glad to be in the Lord's house, and I'm glad that you're here as well. Thank you, praise team, for leading us in worship. Give them a big hand. We appreciate that. Again, I want to thank Miss Sherry for singing such an awesome song. Now, here's one thing I know about the Bible. The Bible is full of encouragement and comfort, is it not? And I love that about the Bible. I mean, I can go to it. I can be encouraged. Uh, when I'm down, I can receive comfort. And I love, I just love preaching sermons on the encouragement and comfort we get from God's Word. Because it is, man. It is, it is a book full of encouragement and comfort. However, let's never forget, it's also a book of warning and woe. That's why it's so balanced. It's got both, man. <laughs> it's got hope and encouragement, but there's also warning and woe in the good book. And if you were to ask me for the two most disturbing scriptures in the Bible, I would point to one at the end of the New Testament and another at the begin, beginning of the New Testament. The one at the end of the New Testament is found in Revelation chapter 20. There is this frightening account of the great white throne judgment of God. And I'll tell you what, you read that passage and, and it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And if you're not saved, you want to get saved by the end of that passage. And if you are a believer, you're going to be shuddering and committing yourself to world evangelism. Because I'm here to tell you, God is coming again. And when he comes again, he is going to judge the world. And those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life are going to go to heaven. Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life will spend eternity in hell. That's a very disturbing passage. The other passage is found at the beginning of the New Testament in, of all places, our Lord's beautiful Sermon on the Mount. Let me just read some of these verses to you found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonderful works in your name? But then I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is warning us in this passage that many unsaved people are going to come to church and they expect to go to heaven. Some are preaching, others are casting out demons, and others are performing miracles. They think they're okay, but they're not. Perhaps they grew up in a Christian home. Perhaps they were baptized once upon a time. Or maybe they went through some religious motion or emotion at some point. But they have never actually had a life-changing encounter with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is telling us there are many people in the church who are, get this, self-deceived. The devil, who is the deceiver of the whole world has built deception into the framework of our society. 
This deceptiveness is actually inside each and every one of us in this room. For we are all experts at deceiving. And the person that we most often deceive is ourselves. (laughs) Man, you didn't know you came for this, did you? Just as the unsaved person can be self-deceived about his or her salvation, the Christian can be self-deceived about their spiritual maturity. Jesus told the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, you think you're rich and have acquired wealth and need nothing, but you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I say, I read that and it just kind of freaks me out. Because Jesus is saying this to a church, to Christians. He's saying to us, hey, you think you're okay, but in my eyes, you're not really as good as you think you are. You, in reality, are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Not only can we be self-deceived about our spiritual maturity, we can also be self-deceived about our lifestyles. There are some Christians who have compromised their convictions and their standards. And it, it freaks me out and blows my mind that I see a lot of modern-day Christians and believers who attend church on Sunday and think everything is okay in their spiritual life when in reality their lifestyle is no different than a person who is lost. There must be a distinct difference in our lifestyles, people. In fact, the Apostle Paul warned, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man reaps, that is what he's going to sow. James told us, If anyone considers himself religious but does not bridle his tongue... He is deceived. He's deceived himself. And his religion is worthless. John said, if we claim to be without sin, we've deceived ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So, it it begs me at this point to ask you the question, how are you deceived today? Because here's, here's one thing I know. Every one of us, even you people in the balcony up there is... As close as you are to God, (laughs) every one of us in this room are self-deceived. So how are you deceived today? Perhaps you think you're saved, but you're really not. Perhaps you think you're a strong Christian, but in reality, you are poor, blind, and naked. Perhaps you believe that you're serving the Lord the best you can, but in reality, your motives are all wrong and selfish. Maybe you're involved in an argument, and you're so proud in your own human spirit that you can't even admit to yourself that you're the one who's wrong. So we are are so prone to self-deception. Every one of us in this room. We are so prone to self-deception because the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Well, let me say, nobody can. You can't even understand your own heart. 
Because your heart is deceitful and your heart is desperately wicked. So who can understand it? Well, you can't. The ancient philosopher said, know thyself. You've heard that quote, know thyself. Well, we found that's an impossible task. Many people try to discover who they are and to make sense of their own identity. At some point in your life, you're going to go through that struggle. I heard about a teenager who explained his weird behavior to his parents by saying, I'm just trying to find myself. To which his father replied, oh, I didn't know you were lost. Well, he was. I ministered to another young man one time going through a lot of confusion, and he told his dad, I'm just trying to figure out who I am. But you know what? His dad was not very sympathetic, but it was a genuine struggle to that teenager. Even the most advanced counseling and psychoanalysis can never really figure us out because our hearts are so interwoven with deceit that we can't even really know our own selves. We hide from ourselves. We lie to ourselves. We are complex creatures whose hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful. So who can know them? Well, I can't really know your heart. Because you're playing games with me and I'm playing games with you. We're deceiving each other. And you can't know your own heart because it's desperately deceitful and wicked. So who can know our heart? Guys, in this whole wide universe, there's only one person who can. There is only one person who is not self-deceived. And the answer to who that person is is found right there in Jeremiah chapter 17, the next verse, verse 10. I, the Lord, God said, I, the Lord, search the heart and I examine the mind. God is searching your heart right now. God is examining your thoughts. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what's inside of you. He's the only one who is not deceived. He's the only one who can see who you are. So in order to know yourself, you've got to know him. That, that is a theme or a motif that runs all the way through Scripture. And one of the anchors to that is Psalms 139. That's where we're going today. I'm fi I finally finished my introduction, and I'm now at the passage we're going to read. Isn't that scary? No, it's about to go like this, all right? Psalm 139 is where we are today. My sermon is how to know yourself. Uh, through the summer, I'm doing this series on how to. Today, we're going to talk about how you can know yourself. Psalm 139 is a psalm with 24 verses. There are actually four different stanzas, each one six verses long. And in each stanza, it deals with a different aspect of the greatness of God, and it applies the greatness of God to our own lives. The psalmist refers to himself 50 times in Psalm 139, always in light of God's omniscience and God's omnipresence and God's omnipotence and God's all-righteousness. And you're saying, there he goes again, saying those big words we've never heard. You know, we're going to talk about those words because they describe who God is. And that's what this passage is all about. So number one, our God is all-knowing. Let me read those verses to you, verses 1 through 6, Psalm 139. Are you there? Well, it's going to be up here, so here it is. O Lord, 
You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Get that? You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Our God is all-knowing. God knows everything. I don't, how many of you are old enough to remember watching Star Trek on TV? Remember the old Star Trek movie? Any, oh, you're kidding me. Come on, be proud of it. If you, do you remember Star Trek? Okay, one of my favorite guys on Star Trek is Mr. Spock. Mr. Spock had this he had several unbelievable abilities, but Spock, Spock could go to someone, he only did occasionally, but he could go to someone and he could place his hands on their head. I think we got a picture of it up here. I'm doing it to Jason, but there, come on, there's, there, there's Spock doing it, man. You know, y'all remember that? What, what he's doing is the Vulcan mind scan. And, and what, what, what he does with the Vulcan mind scan is he's pulling out the thoughts of the person through his fingers. Let me try that on Jason. I can't believe you're thinking that right now. Brother. I can't do that, but you know what? Spock could do it right there. He's do he would put his hands in different places right there. It's down here, but sometimes it's up. And it, I love this. I mean, I love this. Spock could read their mind, but being Spock, he only did it occasionally. And he only did it for good. Because that's the way he rolled. Yeah. I have watched other science fiction movies when evil scientists or governments made these contraptions and they would do the same thing. They would read people's minds. And you're thinking, how in the world can they do that? Well, it's all make-believe. It's fake. They can't really do that. But... God can do it for real. In fact, he's doing it right now. He's doing it with you this very moment. You see, our God knows, knows our words before we say them. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our actions before we do them. Nothing is hidden from him. He views the mental movies that you are playing in your brain right now. He knows the reasons you do a particular thing. He hears the words you think and say under your breath. God knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. God knows everything about us. That's amazing. Number two, our God is all present. Let me read this second stanza beginning in verse number seven. David said, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascended into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light, they are both alike 
to you. Our God is all-present. He's omnipresent. That, that means that God is present everywhere at the same time. That, boy, I tell you what, that blows my brain. To realize that my God is with me in this room. He's with you where you're sitting. He's with my two girls down in Waco, Texas. He's with the people I met in the Philippines at this very moment. He's, every, he's everywhere present at the same time. I remember the story of an American traveler who found an Arabian boy sitting under a palm tree on an oasis. And the American thought he'd have a little bit of fun with this Arabian boy. And so he said, son, I'll give you a dollar if you can tell me where God is. And the boy quickly replied and said, I'll give you a dollar if you can tell me where God is not. <laughs> you can't hide from God. You can't run from God. Ask Jonah. There's no fleeing from his presence. The Methodist minister Charles Allen used to play golf with a man who was known for his profanity on the golf course. One day the preacher said to this man, I've heard that you frequently use profanity on the golf course, yet I've never heard you say a profane word in my presence. To which the man replied, well, when I'm with my preacher, I can control myself. Allen said, well, so suppose that you realize you're always with God. God is always alert. God is always alive and on every scene of our life. Our God is all-knowing. Our God is all-present. Number three, our God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. Look at verses 13 through 18. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me. When as of yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now, I love the language of these verses. It's very poetic and very beautiful. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by the almighty hand of our omnipotent God. The all-powerful God created us. We were knit together in the darkness of our mother's womb. In secret places that nobody else can see except for God. Wow. That is until modern technology has come along with ultrasound. And you can see those babies in their mama's womb. Boy, I'm talking about a lot of things today that freak me out, and that's one of them. Of course, my youngest son, 17, uh, Whitney's 28 years old. They were doing ultrasound back in those days, but it was real blurry, yeah? I can remember seeing Whitney's ultrasound, and, and I would say, okay, what am I looking at here? 
Because <laughs> I don't understand any of this. And that technician would say, well, well, there's her nose. And I said, really? Okay. I don't know how you get that out of that, but okay. There's her finger. Okay, I don't see them there. But it's amazing today. Have you seen a recent ultrasound today? I mean, I just saw the one not long ago of little Dallas Faye when she was in her mama's belly. Before It, it is amazing. You can, you can see facial features of these babies in their mama's womb. It's amazing. I'll tell you what, when, when I was born, my parents, they didn't get a look at me beforehand. They didn't, they didn't know what they were going to get. We won't go there, but you know what I'm talking about. Just in my lifetime, we've obtained that technology, whereas before, nobody could see. Nobody could. Only God could see. And if you really want a verse that messes with your brain cells, look at verse number 16. David is saying, God, you wrote my book before I was even born. You wrote the book of my life before I was even conceived. That's how powerful God is. Even before conception and birth, he knows you through and through. Therefore, listen to me, you cannot erect fronts with God, nor can you hide from his searching gaze. But the psalmist has one more stanza left. Not only does he tell us that our God is all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful. Number four, he tells us that our God is all-righteous. He's a holy God. Look at verse number 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. So, this, this is kind of Old Testament language here. He's saying, God, your enemies are my enemies. Those people who are against you, you know, they're against me as well. But you're righteous. You're all righteous. Your standards don't change. And in the end, you will be victorious. But now, look at verse 23. He sums it all up by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties or my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the path or the way that's everlasting. Now, here's really what I want to emphasize to you, this last stanza and these last two verses. If we are drawn in self-deceit unawares, if our hearts are desperately wicked so that we cannot even know ourselves, there's only one thing left for us to do. And that is, we need to ask God to show us what we're really like. We need to earnestly pray to God and say, God, would you please introduce me to myself? Because apparently I don't know myself. We must pray, search me, O God. The Hebrew word for search is the exact same word that Job used for describing miners who went down into the bowels of the earth digging through rocks, probing through caverns and caves, searching for precious metals. We must ask God to search our minds and our hearts to show us what we're really like. I read about a woman who was going to be interviewed for a TV show. 
And they were going to interview her in her living room. And so all morning, ladies, all morning, she spent cleaning her living room. She cleaned it better than she's ever cleaned it before. And she thought it was spotless. And then the TV crew showed up and they turned on their bright spotlights. And suddenly in the brightness of those TV lights, she was horrified <laughs> to see dust and dirt and cobwebs that she didn't even know were there. My point is this, you might think that you've done a pretty good job cleaning up the mess of your own life. That is until you ask God to turn on the spotlight of his gaze. Then, chances are, you're going to see dirt and dust and spider webs that you didn't even know were there. I can remember vividly years ago in college seeing one of my friends walking across the campus one day, and, and you could just see it on his countenance. He was, he was down. He was depressed. And so I asked him what was wrong, and here's what he said. Will, I prayed and asked God to show me my unconfessed sin that's in my life so that I could deal with it. And he showed me so much of it that I'm depressed to see how very sinful I really am. And I tell you, every one of us in this room, we all need to find an alone place and pray this very prayer of Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God. Search my soul. Search my heart. Search my mind. And Lord, if there's any wickedness, if there's any vileness, if there is anything in my life that shouldn't be there, Lord, would you show it to me so I can confess it? Guys, here's the point of my sermon today. We really can't know ourselves because our hearts are deceitful. But God knows us. He knows us from top to toe. He can show us who we are and He can show us what we're really like. He can search us and know our hearts. He can test us and know our thoughts. He can show us sin that we need to confess. He can show us areas we need to bring into obedience to the Lordship of Jesus and priorities that we need to yield to Him. And then when we've done that, He, begin, he can begin to fashion us into the perfect image of His Son. He can lead us in the way everlasting. You know, as, as I say that, my mind is reeling and telling me, well, that, that is how revival begins. Revival begins not when unsaved people get saved. Revival begins when Christians get their hearts right with Jesus. When, when they quit believing the lie from the deceiver that tells them everything is okay in their life when they're really pitiful and wretched and poor, blind, and naked. That's when revival begins. One day, Dr. J. Edward Orr, who is the foremost authority on revivals, in our world was asked a question by a young college student. And the question was, Dr. Orr, besides praying for revival, what can I do to help begin one? And without hesitation, Dr. Orr replied passionately, you can let it begin with you. Wow. How do we let it begin with us? Well, Dr. Orr went on and wrote a hymn, a prayer based on Psalm 139. And I believe the sincere praying of this prayer 
will bring about revival in your own heart. Here's what Dr. Orr wrote from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send a revival and let it start in me. Church, I have no doubt God wants to revive Kavanaugh Church. God wants to send a revival to Kavanaugh Church. Would you let that revival start with you today? Do this. I've already made this commitment, and many people in the first service made the same commitment. Would you commit that over the next 30 days, you will pray the prayer of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Whether it's when you wake up in the morning or when you go to bed at night. You can have your Bible there on your nightstand or you can write these verses out, put them on your phone and read them during the day. But with me, would you commit to pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 every day for the next 30 days? That is, we are all praying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. I guarantee you, God's going to do something if we pray that prayer. So why not begin that prayer today? Why not come to the altar and start the prayer for revival in your own heart? God, search my heart. Try my thoughts. If there's anything in my life that needs forgiveness, Lord, point it out to me today so I can get my life right with you. See what happens. And through this old prayer written 3,000 years ago, you can come to know yourself like you've never known yourself before. And you can know God like you've never known him before.